Hopefully you can hear me. If you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's good to be back here a year later after I was here previously when Sean was first installed as your pastor. I remember two things about my prior visit, or I remember one thing and was told another. Uh, the first thing that I remember was that about halfway through the sermon, I realized that I had not looked at my watch to see what time I started, which meant looking at my watch subsequently to figure out how, much, how long I had gone and how long I should go was of no use because I did not know when I had started. So I checked today. I started at 11.11. The second thing is that Sean told me yesterday that I had a piece of tissue on my face the entire time that I was preaching. Uh, I, I'm glad that he waited a year to share that with me. Uh, did not let me know during the sermon. So hopefully today I have eliminated all tissue from my whiskers on my, uh, on my face. Our passage this morning is Ezekiel chapter 37. And as we consider that passage this morning, I want you to consider this. If you spent any time around Christians, you have heard them use the language or words such as uh, being saved, or they might refer to someone got saved. If you're a Christian, that, that language probably seems quite natural to you. You, you hear someone were, who says they were saved, or they got saved, or you hear about someone being saved, or, or you said that you have been saved, and, and you know what is meant by that. It doesn't, uh, you don't even pause on that language. But if you're not a Christian, the language about being saved can sound a little odd. You might think, saved from what? I mean, did you almost drown? Uh, did you have an accident this week? I mean, who gets saved, you might think, if that's not language you're familiar with? Or why does someone need to be saved? Who needs to be saved? And, and how do you get saved? And who saves them? And can you save yourself? Is there anyone who just can't be saved? Will everyone be saved? Will no one be saved? Are people wrong in thinking that they are saved when they're not saved? In our passage this morning, in Ezekiel chapter 37, God says that he is going to save people. And in the process of examining this passage, I want to, you to keep in mind the question, what does it mean to be saved. We'll try to answer that question this morning, and it may be, I suspect it will be, that what it means to be saved is perhaps broader, more expansive, richer maybe even than what you have thought about that term. And I hope that you will consider this morning whether you are saved, whether you need to be saved, and how you can be saved. And if you are saved, I hope this morning that you will see reason to thank God for that salvation. Now, before we look at our passage this morning in Ezekiel 37, I thought that some context on that passage would be helpful, because perhaps Ezekiel is, I'm just guessing here, not the book of the Bible you are most familiar with, perhaps not one that you have studied in depth on a regular basis. And so I thought it would be helpful first to provide some context to understand where Ezekiel 37 fits 
in the story of the Bible. So the Bible begins, as you know, by telling us about God. In fact, it begins with, in the beginning, God. And what it tells us is that God, first and foremost, created. He created a perfect world, a sinless world, a garden, a paradise in which man and women lived together with God in harmony with one another and with God. And God gave them one command. The one command was, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them that if they ate that tree, the very day they ate, they would die. Now, we don't know how long this perfect paradise lasted. Perhaps a day, perhaps a week. They were like you and me. Perhaps they didn't wait very long to be intrigued by this tree. And we see that only one chapter later, in Genesis chapter 3, that after God creates and declares everything good, that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, listen to a serpent and disobey God. And they eat of the tree that God had told them not to eat of. They sinned against God. And as a result, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that they are cursed, condemned to death, and banished from paradise. Did they die the very day they ate? They did. If death is the loss of life, then the very day they ate, they lost life as it was meant to be. That the good life that was created for them was lost. That life lived in submission to God was lost. Paradise that day was lost. But was paradise lost forever? I mean, that's the question that you run into when you reach Genesis 3, if you're reading through the story of the Bible. Had life, had paradise been lost forever? While all seemed lost in the fall, we're told in the same chapter of Genesis that God had promised that some descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that led them astray. But as the story progresses, we see that God calls a man named Abraham and promises blessing to the whole world through him. God promises numerous descendants and a life in the land, a land that reaches as far as the eye can see. But by the end of the book of Genesis, And into the early chapters of Exodus, what we see is that while man's descendants were many, they were living under slavery under an Egyptian king, Pharaoh, in a foreign land. But in one of the great miracles of the Bible, God leads the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt and to the promised land, a land of blessing. And as the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, head for the promised land. God promises them blessing and richness of life on one condition, and the one condition is that they obey. As in the Garden of Eden, the blessing and richness of life, a land flowing with milk and honey is available to them if they only obey, and yet once again they do not obey. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it is a story over and over, a cycle of how the people disobey. They fall into captivity of a foreign nation. They cry out to God. God delivers them. 
They then disobey. They fall into captivity of a foreign land. They, fall, they call out to God. And over and over that cycle repeats itself until God raises up a king over the Israelites. But a king also doesn't cure them of their disobedience. For now the kings themselves are wicked. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, it speaks of how the, each king was more wicked than the kings before him. And over and over we're told that the kings are more worse and, and wicked, more wicked and worse than those before them, until finally the kingdom of Israel is divided and then captured, and the people of Israel are carried off into foreign lands. And so it seems again that any hope of paradise in the promised land is lost. So it's in this context, while the people of Israel are living in foreign lands in rebellion against God, that the events of the book of Ezekiel occur. And speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, God communicates with the people of Israel once again to assure them that all is not lost. That they can be saved. And that brings us to chapter 37 of Ezekiel, in which God offers both a vision and an object lesson. He offers a vision and an object lesson to explain that despite all appearances, despite centuries of rebellion by the people of Israel, despite the squandered opportunities for paradise, for deliverance, for blessing, despite all that, all is not lost. And so God offers a vision and an object lesson to offer hope to the people of Israel. In the first half of Ezekiel chapter 37, God shows Ezekiel a vision, which he records for us. It's a vision maybe you've heard some reference to during the course of your life. He refers to, it's referred to as the vision of the valley of dry bones. So look at verses 1 and 2 of Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So, God comes to Ezekiel and he shows him this vision. He brings him to a valley. And what he sees in this valley is that it is covered with bones. It's interesting that he emphasizes that it's not just covered with bones, it's covered with dry bones. So get this picture in your mind. You're standing in a valley and as far as you can see, bones stacked everywhere. Not just any bones, not recently deceased bones, not bones from something that recently died. He emphasizes here in the passage that these are dry bones, that these are deader than dead bones. These bones are as dead as they come, right? We've all eaten uh, turkey, right, at Thanksgiving. You think of those bones, right? They're not dry bones. You, you can picture them, right? They're sort of oily looking, just had the meat on them. 
And so they're bones, but they're not dry bones. That's not what he sees here. He doesn't see here a picture of something that recently died. He sees here a picture of something that has been dead for a long time. These bones are chalky, white, dry. And there is a valley filled with bones as far as he can see. Dry bones. And in verse 3, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? I mean, we've seen stories in the Old Testament of the dead, of people recently dead, who were still full bodies coming back to life. I mean, there are stories of resurrection of bodies in the Old Testament. But bones, just a, just a, a, a valley full of bones, can, can dry bones live? And Ezekiel answers in verse 3 and said, O Lord God, you know. In other words, what he's saying is, well, well, as far as I know, bones don't live. Dead bones don't live. Dry bones that have been dead for a long time do not live. But Ezekiel says, Lord, you, you know. I, I, I don't think bones live, but, but you know whether bones live. I mean, bet bones don't come to life on their own. Bones don't suddenly become people or things that are walking. Bones don't come to life on their own. That's, in fact, what it means to be dead. That the bones are not alive. Not of themselves do dry bones come to life. Not of their own power. Not of their own will. But the question God posed was, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh Lord God, you know. And then in verse 4, God says this. Then he, God said to me, to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them. So God's instruction to Ezekiel is to talk to dead bones. And here's what he wants him to say. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Doesn't this sound foolish? Go out and talk to a valley of bones and say, Hey, bones, hear what God has to say. Thus says the Lord, here's the message, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Do you hear echoes of Genesis there, where we're told in this, the creation story that God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And here, God says to Ezekiel, go say to the bones, I will cause breath to come into you. Spirit, literally, the word is, to come into you, and you shall live. And he says, and Verse 6, I will lay sinews upon you. Think of ligaments. 
I will cause sinews or ligaments to come upon you, and it will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so in verse 7, Ezekiel does as he's told. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. So can you picture this? He's, he's talking to this valley full of dry bones, and all of a sudden he starts hearing clinking. You think of the sound like you'd ever seen like a skeleton around uh, uh, Halloween, you know, and the rattling of the bones. So he starts hearing this clinking of the bones as the bones start coming together, forming people. This, this valley full of bones starts coming together. He says, and there's this rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, verse 8. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. So he's watching this valley full of dry bones, who he just talked to, start coming together, forming people. And then skin and muscle and flesh coming on these bones right in front of him. This valley of bones is coming to life. Except, at the end of verse 8, there was no breath in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, or the word is the spirit. Prophesy to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man. And say to the breath, or to the spirit, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he had commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. So we see here a, a creation story, much like the original creation story, where we're told God formed man out of the dust of the ground. This body is there, but until God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, man did not become a living soul. And so here we see all the physical bodies being formed, flesh and bone creating body, but without breath, until God uses a man to call the dead to life. What's interesting is God didn't say, hey, uh, Ezekiel, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to the bones, and they're going to come to life. What's interesting about the story is that God says to Ezekiel, you talk to the bones, and you call the breath of life into them. And as Ezekiel talks... The word of God, the bones come to life. Can these bones live? Ezekiel sees in front of his very eyes that with the word of God and the spirit of God, even the deadest of dead bones, the driest of dead bones, can live. That when God gives them life, through his word, brought by an obedient man, the dead can live. So what's the point of this vision? Well, God doesn't leave us to figure it out. In fact, he says in verse 11, 
he says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they, the house of Israel, say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. That what Ezekiel is told by God is that these bones that he sees in this vision are, to, to, are representative of the people of Israel who are living in sin and disobedience. The people of Israel who believe that they are hopeless and helpless in their, in their captivity. And God says to them, and God says to Ezekiel, those bones I brought to life are the people of Israel to whom I will give life. That the people of Israel who feel they have no hope, who have rebelled against God, who are dead in their sins, that those bones represent them. And God says, just as I brought those bones to life, I can bring the hopeless, rebellious people of Israel to life too. Can those bones, can those dead people actually live? God says yes, and that he will do it. That in his mercy, God says in verse 12, that he will open graves, not literal in this instance, dead you know, graves where people are actually buried, but he will open the graves of death that these people are in fact living in. That the bondage to sin that they are in, he will raise them from. He will give them new life when all there was is death, as far as they could see. And more than that, he will bring them to their land, the land that had been promised to Abraham, that had been offered in Exodus, and that the people had forfeited through their disobedience to God. God says, I will bring you to life and give you that land. But then the passage switches in verse 15, and God now offers an object lesson to Ezekiel to go with the vision. He offers an object lesson about what he intends to do with these dry bones, with these people of Israel that he will bring to life again. And so God directs Ezekiel to take a stick. So look in verse 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it. So he says, pick up a stick. He tells him to write on it. I don't know what he's writing with. Who knows? Writes with something another stone or a stick, but write on this stick. Here's what you're to write. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. So he says, take one stick and write on it for Judah. Now remember, the kingdom of Israel before the captivity had been divided into the northern kingdom, often referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. So he says, take one stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Judah. Then he says, take another stick, still in verse 16. 
Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel associated with him. So Ephraim is one of the tribes of the northern kingdom, the kingdom often referred to as Israel. So when he says write Ephraim, it's really to represent the northern kingdom. So he says write for Judah, southern kingdom, on one stick, write for Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, on the other stick. And then here's what he says I want you to do with those sticks. Verse 17, and join them one to another into one stick. So take the two sticks and tie them together so that you have what looks like one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Verse 18, and when your people say to you, will you, tell, will you not tell us what you mean by these? So he says, write on these sticks, tie them together, and when people ask you, hey, Ezekiel, what's up with the sticks? Like, why are you writing on sticks? What are you doing with these sticks? When the people ask you, hey, that seems a little strange. Why are you writing on sticks and tying them together? Here's what you're supposed to say. Thus, verse 19, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it to the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. So he says, while the people of Israel are scattered across the world in captivity, I'm going to join them together into one stick. Verse 20, when the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their land. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. Now remember, when the kingdom was divided, Israel had two kings, a king in the north and a king in the south. Remember, after Solomon, who was the last king who reigned over united Israel, the kingdom was divided, and the northern kingdom was ruled by Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom ruled by Rehoboam. And then ultimately they go into captivity and are scattered. And God says here, write on two sticks to represent the two kingdoms. Tie them together and tell the people, I'm going to join the kingdom again together. I'm going to gather these dead bones, these people scattered all over because of their sin. I will gather them again to the land where they will have one king. Verse 23, they shall not defile themselves, they, and, excuse me, verse 22, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will bring these people back from all over the world. I will put them in their land where they will obey, and I will save them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. Now pause there a second. What you need to know when you read this verse is that David was king like 500 years ago. 
David's long dead in the Bible story. David was king around 1000 BC. This is like around 500 BC. 500 years have passed since David was king. So is this just another dude named David? Or is this the David who died? And if David died 500 years ago, how's he going to be king when we go back in the land? Is this really that King David that we know from the Bible? Because it says, And my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. You see that down again at the end of verse 25. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And it says in verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So what's interesting here is that God will dwell with them at the same time that David will be their king. Did you catch that? He twice says, I will be their people, they will be my people and I will be their God. And he says there in verse 27, I, that, and my, this is God speaking, my dwelling place shall, live, shall be with them. So this is really interesting. God says, David will be your king in the new land when I live with you. Isn't it interesting that God says here, I'm going to come live with you, not you're going to come live with me. Remember that from Genesis, God came to them in the garden. And God says, again, I'm going to put you in the land. I'm going to gather you back from everywhere you're scattered. I'm going to put you in the land, and I, God, will dwell with you. I, God, am moving into your neighborhood. And when I live in your neighborhood, David will rule over you. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So what is that all about? What is the point of that object lesson? What is the point of that vision? I mean, what is, that's really interesting, Matt. I've never focused on that story before. Thank you for sharing. What does that have to do with me? How to this week, how this morning, does this story about ancient Israel, this vision, this object lesson, relate to me? Well, what we know here is that what God is depicting in this vision of dry bones is sinful man. And the way that sinful man is dead like a dry bone. I mean, Scripture tells us this over and over, that man is dead in his sin. As God said in the Garden of Eden, the day you eat, the day you disobey, the day you violate my rule, the day that happens, you will die. And when Adam and Eve sinned, as I said, that day, they did die. They lost life as it was meant to be. 
And this, the reality is that all of us are in that same condition. We are all born in that same condition, that the day we are born, we die. The day we are born, we are dead. We are without life as it is meant to be. And here's the problem with being dead, among other things. You cannot bring yourself to life. That what, what is being depicted here is the death that we face just like the people of Israel in their disobedience faced. That no dead thing has ever resuscitated itself. Dead things come to life only because someone else brings them to life. And we see that in the Valley of the Dry Bones, that what is depicted here is that God speaks life into existence. That was true in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and that is true of us today. That God, if we are to have any spiritual life, if we are to have any life again, if we are have to have any life after the death of Genesis chapter 3, that that, de- that life comes only because God speaks it into existence. In fact, it's interesting, if you look again at, Gen- at Ezekiel 37, look at verse 12. God says this, he says, Behold, I will open your graves. I will bring you into the new land. I open graves and raise you. I will put my spirit within you. That what's emphasized over and over in this passage, that that Ezekiel is told that these dead bones represent the spiritually dead people of Israel, the people who are in exile because they are in rebellion against God. And what what, what God says is, I use people, I use prophets like Ezekiel to speak my word, but it is I, God, who bring life out of death. What we see here is that all is not lost for those who are dead. There is life for the dead. These bones can live. The dead can come to life. The curse of Genesis 3, the curse of sin, does not need to be permanent. The dead can have new life again, but that happens, that only happens, when God calls the dead to life. Only he can do that. No dead man can resurrect himself. And the point here is that like the people of Israel who were in rebellion against God, we too are dead in our sins. We heard read this morning from Ephesians, where God, where God speaking through Paul used that language again about us being dead in our sins, that that's how God views us. And dead bones can live and do live because, as Ezekiel says, God saves. He saves us from our sins. So there's two observations here to be made from that. And the first is this, that there is nothing that you can do, there is nothing that you must do to save yourself. There is nothing you can do, there is nothing you must do to give new life to yourself. What is interesting about this story about the, new, about the dry bones is that the bones did nothing to save themselves. The bones did nothing to give themselves new life. That what happened was God called them to life through Ezekiel. The vision here is not, is not of weak bones. The vision here is not of frail bones. The vision here is not of thin bones. The vin- vision here is of dry, dead bones. To emphasize the point 
that dead bones live only if someone else gives them life. These bones could not save themselves. They could not give life to themselves. That if life was going to be given to these bones, it was only because God decided to bring life to the bones. Just as in Genesis 3, where God called life into existence, so we see repeated in Ezekiel, that God calls the dead spiritually back to life. That only God can save. That there is nothing that we do to earn it. There is nothing that we can do to bring it about. That salvation, whether for you or for me, new life, whether for you or for me, is the work of God in bringing the dead to life. The message of the Bible is not try harder. The message of this church is not do more or work at it more or try more. The message is not give it a good try. The message of the Bible is that only God can save from death. And thank God he does. The second point then that follows from the first, and it is this, that if you are here this morning as one who now has this new life, it is only because God had mercy on you. It is only because God chose to call you to life. And that should inspire thankfulness and gratefulness and obedience and worship on our part. As the psalmist says, who are we as men that you are mindful of us, God? I mean, why did God give us new life? Why did God give me new life? I mean, I've said to, I've observed before, I've tried to say this to my kids, that if they were born in America, they won life's lottery. You think about all the people born every year around the world. To be born in America is to win life's lottery. And then say, and of all the people born in the world, God saved me? God called me to life? Not I called myself to life. Not I was a reasonably good, healthy bone. You know, had some nicks and scrapes, but, you know, nothing that couldn't be overcome. I was a dead, dry bone who God called to life. Why did God call me? Why did God breathe his spirit in me as one who was dead, as one who was unable to save myself, as someone who, like these Israelites, was hopeless and helpless? Why did these dead bones live? The only answer scripture gives us is because of God's grace. So my question for you this morning is, have you experienced that new life? Has there been a moment when you have acknowledged, admitted, that you were dead? I mean, not physically dead, but that you had lost life as God had intended it. That you were living your own way by your own rules in your own rebellion against God. I mean, what the New Testament calls that acknowledgement is repentance. A recognition that like Adam and Eve, that I was in rebellion against God that I was warring against his commands, that I might have been better than other people, but I was not good, that I was resisting his perfect will, that I was living life as I saw fit. What the Bible calls that is not life, but death. 
Have you ever acknowledged your deadness? Have you ever recognized that you need life? That what you have been living is not life? That it is not life as God intended? That it is no way to live and in fact it is not living at all? Have you ever acknowledged in the words of that movie title that you were a dead man walking? If you have ever acknowledged that, if you sit here this morning and say, there is a, a time when I've acknowledged that, you should thank God because this passage reminds us this morning that it is only because God used someone to speak his word into your life and call your dead bones to life. You live only because a gracious God spoke the word. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never declared, you have never acknowledged that God has declared that you are in fact dead. That as we heard this morning from Ephesians, that you were dead in your sins. Maybe you have never acknowledged that. Maybe you've never even heard someone tell you that that is true about you. The good news for you, what Christians call the gospel, is that you can acknowledge, you can repent, you can admit your deadness even this morning. That when Jesus lived here on earth, we're told in the New Testament, in the, in the gospels, that the first word he preached ever was repent. His message was a message of repentance, it was a message calling us to acknowledge that like these bones, we were dead. And admitting who we are, admitting our deadness, is the first step to recognizing our need for life. God calls you this morning to repent, to acknowledge your deadness, acknowledge that the life you are living according to your rules and your standards your vision, your preferences, is not life at all. It is death. It is dry bones. And the good news is that we have a God who gives life to dry bones. There is a God who breathes life, breathe, breathes life into death. There is a God who, as verse 13 says, open graves and raises dead people to life. The New Testament tells us that God came to earth as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, died a death on, our, on the cross as a penalty for the sin that we should have suffered death for, and then rose from the grave after three days, and Christ died and rose from the dead so that you can have the life that is depicted in the vision in Ezekiel. He offers that life to those who acknowledge that they are dead, who repent and trust in him for that new life. Can your dead bones live this morning? They can. There is no sin that you have committed that is too great for God's mercy. There is no bone too dead that God cannot bring it to life. You know, what's interesting is that he depicts these bones... He goes out of his way in this vision to show how dead they are because there is no death too great that God cannot overcome it. There is nothing you could have done this morning that puts you beyond the reach of a God who gives life to the dead. 
You know, one of my favorite songs is entitled, His Mercy is More, by Matt Papa. The song says, What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patient could wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. God calls you to repentance today. His mercy is more than your sins. So what about the object lesson? The two sticks tied together, what is the point of that and what relevance does that have for me? Well, what we see here is that the salvation that is offered to us, the new life that is offered to us, the hope that awaits us, that it is not just bones brought to life, but life in the new land forever as the people of God. As the New Testament tells us in a number of places, including most clearly in Romans and in Galatians and Ephesians, that the people of God were never meant to be only those who were ethnically descendants of Abraham. Rather, the people of God are all the dry bones of whatever nation, tribe, and tongue that God has brought to new life. And so Ezekiel is told by God that these people of God will be gathered from among all the nations to the land that was promised to them. And there will be a ruler named David, not the David who died hundreds of years before, but rather a descendant of David, who will be an eternal ruler and will rule forever. Looking back, of course, we know that this ruler, this descendant of David who will rule forever in the new land is Jesus. And this explains why that descendant of David will rule forever at a time when God lives with us because that descendant of Abraham is God. He claimed to be the Son of God and he will eternally rule over us in that blessed land forever. And where will these people of God under the rule of God live? Not in some far off heaven, but on earth and an earth with no curse, and an earth filled with peace, verse 26, and an earth where man is no longer in rebellion against God, but as verse 24 tells us, in a land where man is living in submission and in obedience to God. If you grew up in a church tradition where you recited creeds, perhaps you remember reading or reciting the Nicene Creed, which says that our hope as Christians, the hope depicted in this object lesson, is that we look, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 
The point is that for those who have not new life, this object lesson tells us that this world is not the end. The hope of Christians is that there is coming a world in which pain and sorrow and sin and sadness, death and destruction will be no more. That God will gather his people from all the nations and will bring them to a land of perfect obedience where God himself will rule over us and we will be his people and he will be our God forever. That Ezekiel is pointing this out, that, that, that he is referencing this final day when we will live perfectly with God is a point made if you hold your finger in Ezekiel 37 and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Turn over there to Revelation chapter 21. And in that chapter, you see, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so John writes and says, I see how the story ends. I see the land. I see the new Jerusalem. I see where God's people dwell. And here's what he hears a voice from the throne say, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That John uses the same language that was used in Ezekiel to say that story about people coming into the land was not a story about going and living on some little strip of land next to the Mediterranean Sea. That this is about the eternal state, about living forever with God in obedience as the people of God. And he tells us in verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. If you are here this morning and you are one who has repented of your sins, if you are one who has trusted Christ, if you are one who was a dead bone formerly but now is alive, the hope you have, as depicted in that object lesson that, that was done by Ezekiel, is that there is coming a day when there is a land with no pain and no sorrow and no sin. I don't know all that you may be going through this morning. I don't know what pain you may be facing. I don't know what tears you may have shed, what sorrow you might feel, what death you may have experienced even this year. But the good news, the gospel, for those who have trusted Christ, for those who have been brought to life, for those dead bones who now live, the good news is that this world is not the end. that one day all things will be as they were meant to be. That God will make all things new. That he will set all wrongs right. 
that he will end every injustice, that he will eliminate every pain. The good news is that there is eternal life. The good news is that he can make those bones live. John Newton was a slave trader in the 1700s. He became a Christian and wrote one of the most famous Christian hymns ever written. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. Newton writes in his last verse of that same hymn about the object lesson of Ezekiel, the hope of new life. He writes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Can these bones live? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you bring the dead to life. We thank you this morning that there are people gathered here in this room and in churches around the world who have heard your word spoken and who have repented and been called to life. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning for whom that is not true, who has never acknowledged their deadness before you, their need of you. I pray that even this morning, this would be the morning that those bones live. And I thank you for the fact that you offer us hope of eternal life under your rule where you will be our God and all wrongs will be set right. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.